1: Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo.
0: Hello, Andrew.
1: Hey, Monica. Chopped anyone's head off lately?
0: Mmm, can't say I have. I like to pace myself, you know.
1: Well, I got this mysterious package in the mail, and I'm kind of afraid to open it.
0: Uh, I I don't blame you. Sketchy DVDs?
1: (laughs) There's a disc in it, but I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like a screener or some cool new video game. It just says Ola.
0: Yeah, it just says Ola. With a smiley face on it, I hope.
1: (laughs) Oh, as always... You can subscribe to Cinema Fix on iTunes or Stitcher and email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail at 336-793-2509. We would love to hear from you. This is part two of episode number 70, focused on the movie The Counselor. So if you're looking for part one, you are listening to the wrong file. Go away. We're going to spoil stuff for you. If this is your first time listening to the show... Basically, this this is the program on Film Geek Radio devoted to discussion of mainstream blockbuster films, and each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a spoiler-free discussion, and the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film, complete with spoilers, and it's designed to be listened to after you've heard part one, or at least after you've seen the movie. Again, this is part two, so if you don't want us to ruin everything for you, stop listening now and go check out part one. This week we're talking about The Counselor. Here's a clip. Do you
0: know what a bolito is? Nope. Bolo is one of those skinny neckties or you know, one of those things you throw Argentina. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, in this case, it's a mechanical device. And it has this small electric motor with this rather incredible compound gear that retrieves a steel cable. Driven, and the cable is made of some unholy alloy, almost impossible to get it. And it's in a loop. And you come up behind the guy, and you drop it over his head, and you pull the free end of the cable tight and walk away. No one ever even sees you. And pulling the cable activates the motor, and the noose starts to tighten, and it continues to tighten until it goes to zero. Cuts the guy's head off. Yeah, well, he can. (laughs) There's nothing he can do. No.
1: Okay, Monica, we just need to go ahead and get something out of the way in this discussion. Oh. Cameron Diaz has sex with a car in this movie.
0: <laughs> Forever scars you?
1: What did you think of that scene, and what do you think the purpose was?
0: Well, like I said in part one, I kind of got a vibe, at least in this story, that women are framed as women be crazy. So this all just served like the way that Javier Bardem's character explains it. He's like, I, you just can't unsee that. This is crazy. That, yeah, women be crazy. But later on, you see she's much more of a manipulator. So whether this was a sort of show for him or makes him not want to leave her, it's used by her. She's using her sexuality to get what she wants.
1: Well, I think the reason he was so disturbed by it and the reason he brings it up. And he even tells the counselor, he's not even sure why he brings it up it just kind of unsettles him it's because it's such a display of power this sort just this attitude of i am who i am and i'm going to do what i want
0: and she will do your car on top of you
1: <laughs> yeah like the like your this sign of your wealth and your power
0: and your manhood
1: <laughs> yeah i'm just going to have sex with it just to show you i can mm-hmm. and it's the first real sign we get that malkina is really the film fatale. She's the brains behind it all. She is the predator.
0: She's the cheetah.
1: Yeah, she's the cheetah.
0: Almost literally, because she has those tattoos on her back.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you th- again, this movie's, just, this movie's just a little heavy-handed when it comes to its central metaphor. Like, we get it, Corette McCarthy. This is about predators and prey and how the predators are going to kill the prey and there's nothing the prey can do about it, okay? We get it. <laughs> you don't need to hammer it in. Also, what
0: kind of rich people does he know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like someone who, who wrote that this story depicts people, like, rich people like it was an Oliver Stone film. It's so much to the excess.
1: Right. And as you mentioned in part one, the Cameron Diaz character, Malkina, sheets presented in contrast to the Penelope Cruz character, Laura who is very virginal, seems very pure. She doesn't
0: know what's going on in the background.
1: And at times, uh, I read one review that pointed out that she chooses to remain ignorant. Mm -hmm. There's that scene where she and Cameron Diaz are talking, and Cameron Diaz brings up the diamond and is like, do you want to know how much it's worth? Or do you want to know how much it costs? And Penelope Cruz is like, no, I don't want to know. She's choosing to deny what her fiancé is going to have to do to keep up this lavish lifestyle, whereas Cameron Diaz just embraces it and chooses to be out on top of it. So you're right, there is a little bit of that version whore dichotomy.
0: I mean, it was very obvious just how to the extremes those characters were played, because obviously I don't believe that people operate in extremes like this, or at least personality wise but it was such like a sketch outline like this is the good girl this is the bad girl it was a little too much again added to my feeling that Cormac McCarthy has issues with women someone want to answer that for me is this a normal thing in his books
1: Cormac McCarthy doesn't have a women problem Cormac McCarthy has a people problem he just hates people. He just thinks people are inherently evil creatures. Well,
0: it would be, I guess, more placed on the personality of the person, more so than, I guess, essential characteristics. Like, the vir- something like as simple as the virgin whore dichotomy was just, it's too simplistic for ladies, whereas for the guys, it seems like it's personal failures on their part that cause them their ultimate downfall
1: right and you're right when you say that these are really just archetypes this whole movie is just filled with archetypes and not real characters in my opinion and it seems like he's consciously doing Mm -hmm. that i mean the the opening scene is michael fassbender and penelope cruz in bed for a good amount of time for probably at least 30 seconds we don't see who it is under the Mm -hmm. covers. We hear their voices and we just see them uh, you know, rolling around under under the The sheets. sheets, But but they're indistinguishable. We don't know who they are. They could be anybody. They're not individuals.
0: But false hope (laughs) that beginning was. I was like, oh, this could be a happy movie. She gets, you know serviced by Fassbender. Awesome.
1: (laughs) You thought I was gonna be happy because she had like the best orgasm ever.
0: (laughs) And then the happiness ended.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she was uh, sopping, I believe he puts it, and then you have constant references to moisture mm. throughout the film, and it seems like everyone is always sweating or has some sort of liquid on their face. It was very, very strange, because it feels like a very cold movie, but everyone just seems like they're constantly sweating.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, subtlety, not, not a thing.
1: Right. There's just so much foreshadowed from the very beginning. As soon as Brad Pitt brings up the Bolito, you know someone's going to die like that. As soon as he mentions the snuff film, it's going to pop up again. But it's so distant at times that I don't know about you, but I had trouble piecing together the whole drug plot and what exactly was going on. And I'm not sure if I'm just slow and I missed it or if Ridley Scott and Cormac McCarthy were being intentionally vague because it really doesn't matter what the details are. All that matters is that Malkina's in charge and it's whatever happens, it's inevitable.
0: Yeah, I was intrigued by where the plot was going. But yeah, the specifics of the case and how the counselor gets involved in all of this is kind of skipped over. Like he's already in by the time... We jump into the story.
1: Well, he's he's making the decision to, to go in, even though everyone is telling him you probably shouldn't. But then there's that whole thing with Rosie Perez and her son, yeah. where I was just trying to figure out, so wait, her son was delivering the drugs or the money to Michael Fassbender or to wherever it was supposed to be delivered, yeah. and Malkina set it up so as a result of him dying the cartel would be turned on to Fassbender, and it, it was just kind of like a huge coincidence. Yeah. That the courier would be the son of this client. I, well, was, the, is I, I she was just in to jail out, for
0: like, some drug related offense I'm I'm taking it. So it's like the family business.
1: Right. I was just, well I was just trying to figure out like what did Malkina set into motion and what was just coincidence? Cause it kind of seemed like the fact that this guy that they they killed Being Rosie Perez's son and it tying back to the counselor, it almost seemed like coincidence. And at one point, uh, Fassbender even says like it was a coincidence. And I think Javier Bardem's like, "Well, the cartel or you know these people they don't believe in coincidence." So I was just trying to figure out is it was it really a coincidence or what was the what was the plan exactly? And it was just hard for me to piece together the details. And I think that's why the film feels so rough, because you don't really get a full picture of these people and what they're doing. You just get this overbearing tone and this sense of, well, whatever's happening, it's not going to end well.
0: You're not going to be filled in, just take it as it is, which is kind of something that American audiences aren't used to and may not appreciate. But even then, this one felt more messy. Like, I think that's accurate to say it's more of a tone. It's more of a theme to get across than, say, a story.
1: Right. And I think one of the reasons it doesn't work is because it forecasts that theme mm-hmm. from the very beginning. I mean, if you look at something like No Country for Old Men, that's a movie largely about the same thing. About how death and this force is coming for you and you cannot stop it and it's all inevitable. No matter what you try to do, you mm. cannot escape it. But for most of that movie's runtime, it works because you think that Josh Brolin's character can get out of it. You think that there is a chance. You think that he that that his actions will matter. And then when he just dies, you realize, oh no, that's not what this movie is about. Whereas with The Counselor, they, they tell you straight up from the very beginning, this you, yeah. you cannot escape it. So just banish that thought from your mind. And as a result, there's not very much suspense because they tell you from the very beginning, everything is futile.
0: Yeah, it goes back to that subtlety, not a thing here.
1: (laughs) Right, and it's just a matter of structuring your film. If you want to have a very fatalistic film that's about how people can't escape, you need to at least start off by giving the audience the illusion that escape is possible. Otherwise... I feel like his viewers were not going to be very engaged.
0: Yeah, or something about the central character that makes us really intrigued. And I don't think they built that into Fassbender's counselor. Is that he's just, he goes from cool, yeah, I got this, to freak out mode. So it's kind of like, so why do I care about this guy that he just really messed up?
1: It's too distant. The characters are a little bit too archetypal. And the, I mean, the actors are yeah. good. I think they're giving good performances. Um, they're
0: delivering d- lines of dialogue that could choke the average person.
1: <laughs> right. And I mean, there's a scene where Michael Fassbender's in a car on the phone, mm-hmm. and he's starting to realize what we, the audience, have known all yeah. along, which is that he can't escape. And he just, the look on his face, it, it's a it's a good performance, but it's hard to feel fully invested in that character because we don't really know him. And I'll even defend Cameron Diaz. A lot of people are saying that she's the weakest link in the film. I actually liked her performance. I think she's quite having a, a
0: grand old time. Yeah, I thought she yeah. did, she loved being the femme fatale, like the bad girl. This was what we wanted from like bad teacher. No, no, no. Here's no holds bar. She's all out on this one. She does a card, man.
1: Yeah, she seems like she's having fun. She's into it. She's 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 enjoying the material. And I don't know why people are saying that they didn't like that. Is it be- Maybe it's because it just, her character, because she's the predator, you know, her character isn't quite as desolate and as doomed and as serious yeah. as all the other characters. So maybe it feels a little bit out of place. Maybe
0: they still have her image from when she did the mask <laughs> and they can't get over that. I, yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I don't know. But I, I thought that she did a really, really good job. I did too. So I don't understand all the Cameron Diaz hate out there.
0: I wanted to ask you what you thought about using the Mexican drug war because I actually just came across a documentary called Narcocultura about how it's escalated in the past few years to an epidemic uh, proportion and just how big the killings are and how violent they've gotten. It's very indiscriminate. It's totally a power play against the citizens of many cities across the area. What did that feel like for you as a sort of like backdrop for this story about rich people?
1: I get the impression that Cormac McCarthy has used uh, the Mexican cartel in his work before and that it's pretty much the same. It's pretty much always the same. The Mexican cartel is death and danger and you cannot escape. And Mexico is a horrible, awful place to be. But you're right. We do seem to be seeing that pop up a little bit more in pop culture. I don't know if you've seen the TV series The Bridge.
0: Um, I have not.
1: On FX, but uh, the city of Juarez also plays a big role in that show. And just that idea of violence and the fact that there are so many people that get kidnapped and just disappear yeah. and nobody knows what happened to well, them. Well,
0: that's the, that's the setting for the documentary that's coming up in November, Narco...
1: Well, there's an interesting scene in the counselor where Michael Fassbender leaves his mm-hmm, hotel that's what room. I was
0: thinking of yeah,
1: yeah, and there's this there's this little protest going on outside with, with people with signs demanding justice and and demanding action for all of the people that have disappeared. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that that was interesting. But yeah, Mexico in Cormac McCarthy's eyes doesn't seem to be a very nice place.
0: No.
1: And I wanna I wanna get your opinion on something. Okay. I want I want you to tell me if I'm being subconsciously racist. Oh my. <laughs> about something. We talked in part one about how every character in this movie spouts philosophical monologues. Mm-hmm. It seemed particularly awkward to me when there were non-white characters speaking those lines. And I was trying to figure out Is it the performance? Is it the writing? Am I being unconsciously racist? Is it because I'm assuming that English is not these characters' first language, so therefore it's unrealistic for them to be able to speak it so eloquently? It just something seemed a bit off, and I was trying to figure out if the problem was the movie or if the problem was me.
0: Do you really want me to answer that?
1: Yes, I want you to answer that.
0: Yeah, sounds a little racist, yo, Um, (laughs) because there are definitely non-white professors in English that can probably recite amazing prose better than you and I as native English speakers could.
1: Well, it was also the fact that, okay, you've got Javier Bardem, who seems to be just playing a drug dealer, Mm. and we're not quite sure how educated he is. And just the way he would phrase some of his lines, I'm thinking that sounds so written. Again, it sounds like it would be, it would work better on the page.
0: I mean, I felt that for a lot of the characters.
1: Well, yeah. Yeah. The
0: same thing with uh, Brad Pitt, who kind of has a sort of, is it his accent like Texan or something? Or Louisiana? I can't remember. But... He has such a drawl on him that he would say these really long, you know, if you think I'm your friend and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I didn't write it down, unfortunately. This is too long of a quote. But when he was saying them, I would also kind of think, like, no one talks like this.
1: Yeah. And the worst offender to me was that that big phone call at the end that Michael Fassbender has with the, the Mexican official. And I was trying to figure out... Is it the actor? Am I racist? What is going on here?
0: Little racist because, you know, people can still afford an education in America.
1: I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just the context and the fact that they're on the phone. I was just like, why is this guy giving this huge monologue about life? I mean, it's the
0: same thing, like, why is Brad Pitt throwing back beers and being all, you know, existential?
1: I mean, I, can, I guess I can buy it more if you're having, like, an in-person conversation with somebody, but just on the phone when it's like, this is an important official and it seems like he probably has better things to do. Then talk to Michael Fassbender and tell him what's up. I don't know. Just something about it just struck me as really, really weird. It's definitely coming
0: from a very well-read source, I guess. So like that comes out where that's not the majority of the population or so. So he just doesn't know how to tone it down to what real people sound like. But we don't have that problem, I feel like, in all the other films that he's had. Or he's done. Or it's not as obvious. Maybe the filmmakers chop up his sentences a little bit more. Maybe when it's adapted for the screenplay, it's watered down here and there. Because those long, 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 long pontifications don't translate over as well in just natural conversation.
1: Or maybe I'm just racist.
0: Sorry. Yeah, I'm calling you out because if your tip-off was, It's a non-white dude saying these things. That's a little racist.
1: I, well, it, I don't know if it was just, like, the heavy accents or maybe the fact that I'm just assuming English isn't the first language. It was just, I don't know, something struck me I as I mean, English is not off. my first
0: language. You wouldn't know that.
1: Well, right, but I also wouldn't expect you to give... I i would barely expect people where English is their first language to be giving such big, eloquent monologues. Yeah, and that's
0: more Car- Cormac McCarthy's fault.
1: Yeah, I guess, it's, I guess. It's all on him. Anyways, I apologize for my unconscious racism. I'll try to be better. Check your privilege. Yes. And I was thinking about it as I watched the movie. I was like, am I the problem here?
0: What happens when you stay in the South?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Alright, is there anything else you would like to say about The Counselor? Mm, No. Other than, man, that's an ironic title.
0: Yeah, Counselor, always asking for counsel. How about that?
1: Yes, and and no one ever gives it to him. Like, Brad Pitt is always just like, hey, I can't tell you what to do. Yon, <laughs>
0: yon. Not your friend.
1: I can tell you the situation, but I can't make this decision for you. I <laughs> will
0: swish my hair back and forth really nice for the camera, but I will not tell you what you're going to do. Bye.
1: Yeah. And then there was that whole scene with, at, at the country club or whatever, yeah. where he runs into one of his previous clients. And I was like,
0: what is this? Yeah, there's a few, I think, if I remember correctly, there's a few of those moments, like, why is this here? Like, just yeah. random interchanges. It's like, mm, okay. Or like when the, um, I guess I didn't really feel the need for that confrontation from – oh, yeah, the, it, is a, it is the former client that that happens with. And he, like, mm-hmm. challenges him. It's like, oh, it's part of the territory. Okay. And then close case, we're never going to mention it again. Even though we'll mention the thing that right. we talk about in the first, like, ten minutes of the movie. Cut someone's head off with a wire.
1: Yeah, and the violence in this movie is so cold and not thrilling at all. It seems like Ridley Scott, as the director, is doing his best to make sure the violence is not thrilling in any way. And I was wondering if that is why they don't show the snuff film. I'm
0: kind of glad they didn't. How's that?
1: (laughs) I'm glad too, but there's also that morbid side of me that was like, oh man, is he going to watch it? Is he going to watch it? And I was wondering, like, okay, did Ridley Scott as the director or Cormac McCarthy as the writer go, okay, we don't need to include that scene because it's not necessary. The audience will get the point. Or did they do it because, was it just like, we don't want to present any violence. We don't, we don't want to appeal to the more morbid side of the audience's yeah. psychology. Or to at
0: least glorify the violence it is so much, it is, yeah, you're right, it's so cold and
1: distant. And I will say, though, that the scene where uh, Brad Pitt meets yeah. his demise.
0: Yeah, how many times has he died in a, in a movie?
1: I don't know, actually.
0: It's not enough, like, he was having fun with it. <laughs> twitch, twitch.
1: <laughs> like, the whole scene is just him walking through the streets, and it's crowded, and you just know something's gonna happen. And it, w- it really worked for me. And the jogger mm-hmm. passes him at first. And the way that Ridley Scott shoots it, he like really focuses in on the fact that there's mm-hmm. this jogger coming towards Brad Pitt, and then nothing happens, and he's just kind of like, "Oh, fooled you there." And then later, the jogger comes back. Uh, I just thought, it, yeah, it was a yeah. really, really well yeah, done. That, was, that scene. was good.
0: That strange comment about, "Oh, Americans are always so reliable," from Malkina at the end. Again, it's like one of those like random tangents. Like, what did you want to say there? What about Americans? what are they reliable on because they're not always reliable you know it's just like idea thrown okay now we're gonna walk back
1: speaking of america i have read one or two reviews that basically say this movie is brilliant because it's all about america and the counselor he makes wrong decisions like america has to reap the consequences like america innocent people end up dying as with other countries <laughs> and the rest of the world. <laughs>
0: well, that's one way to look at it.
1: <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess that reading's valid. But again, this movie is so distant. I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't come away. And you know me, Monica. I, I, I like to overanalyze things, and I didn't come away from this movie.
0: No, I did not pick that vibe up at all. But it's a, it's an interesting reading into the film. Yeah. It's probably a lot better reading into the film than. Choking on But see,
1: even if that was the intent, I feel like we've seen so many more engaging movies about mm-hmm. that and about how America has – and movies that are just allegories for about post-9-11 America and everything that happened mm. that I'm not sure – I don't think that the, this movie really adds anything to the conversation, except mm-hmm. you're right. It does, as we've just talked about, it doesn't glorify the violence, and it doesn't present the traditional myth that if you screw up, you can get away with it.
0: Because that's not McCarthy style. Right. Yeah. My only question, I guess, would be the whole rich lifestyle. Well, I guess it does take place pretty much in the upper echelons of society. Like the ca- like a lawyer, a counselor, is pretty well off. Mm-hmm. And so are the drug lords, so... I guess that kind of works. Yeah. I was more worried, like, if, if this was really about America, wouldn't we be the super rich ones? Instead of trying to... Well, maybe because he's trying to pay off debt, yo.
1: We, yeah, we're the counselor. Yeah. We, we think we're all that, and then it turns out we're not.
0: So are we asking for help? Because that seems very un-American. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and nobody's offering it.
0: Shoot <laughs> first ask questions later. And that's what gets us into trouble.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you want to read the movie that way, is and I think, okay, it is. it is, I think, a valid point to say that this movie is subverting traditional Hollywood tropes. And it's subverting this idea that we can go to the movies and be entertained by violence and mm-hmm. come away feeling like, oh, yes, it is possible to escape the consequences for our actions. And it is possible to to ultimately triumph at the end, no matter what. And so I think that this movie is an interesting subversion of that, but I just, it just wasn't engaging enough on either an emotional or intellectual level Mm. to really draw me in. I mean, I would say if you want to see a cold, distant movie like that, go watch something like funny games, for example, Which is very much the same way, but it's making an effort to make sure the audience realizes that that's what the point is. Mm. You're used to these myths and these ideas about your entertainment and how life works, and we're going to deny you that. Fair. So, yeah, the, the counselor just, it just seemed like it was doing stuff that I've seen before done better.
0: Yeah, no, certainly. It's a curiosity piece to watch, Right. It's not like I can recommend it on good faith.
1: Right. And I mean, it's certainly not the worst movie of the year. No,
0: that's, uh, (laughs) we haven't even finished the year. I'm always very hesitant to call worst movie of the year two months before the year ends. I'll at least wait till end of December, January. Who knows? Maybe like the Teletubbies movie will like get released or something. And then we really got a problem.
1: Hey, I sat through a good day to die hard. Okay.
0: Uh, yeah, so did I. <laughs> I have not forgotten that.
1: <laughs> the Counselor was better than that.
0: At least it was shot better.
1: That's true. <laughs> it was. It, it, yeah, it, it, visually, it's a, it's a, it's a well-done movie. All right, Monica, let's move on to our final segment of the show. Reboot This. We haven't done Reboot This in a while.
0: So we're rebooting this to reboot this.
1: So, Reboot This is a segment we like to do, and how it works is that we're going to pitch either a prequel, sequel, or remake to the movie that we just discussed, because Hollywood insists on everything becoming a franchise, if possible, these days. So, Monica, if Hollywood came to you and said, Ridley Scott and Cormac McCarthy really don't want to do a sequel to The Counselor, they've said all they need to say, they think that everyone got the point. But we want to make more money, and we have some of these actors on contract to come back for a sequel if we do one, or or more installments. You can do whatever you want with it, Monica, and you have an unlimited budget. What would you do?
0: Maybe do a prequel. Let's flesh out some of these characters. I'm interested how Penelope Cruz got mixed up with the counselor. You know, little things like that. How Malkina fits into the picture, more so than she just kind of places herself in this position of power well, let's see her climb up to that top um, sort of deal. I'd be interested in that and I'd be interested in another screenplay writer.
1: <laughs> because you want something a little bit more optimistic for the rise to power.
0: Oh, uh, I don't know if it has to be optimistic per se. Obviously, it can be on a big downer beat like The Counselor was, but it certainly could use with a few edits mm-hmm. in terms of just the lines of dialogue. Again, the fact that Some of those monologues, (laughs) Shakespearean length, you could probably chop that up into more of a conversation.
1: Get like Werner Herzog on it. (laughs) Someone who has, at times, like a kind of cynical existential view of the universe but not quite as bad as Corbett McCarthy.
0: Yeah, like, they don't have to take out the negativity. I'm okay with the negativity. The thing is, when it's so cold and distant that I don't really care what's going on in the picture, we have a problem.
1: I think I would want to see a sequel all about Malkina getting what's coming to her. I think that now that we've... We've seen, we've had time, we've had this one movie to see, oh, Malkina's in control, she's the predator. Should we just
0: assume that Fassbender dies off, or does he come back for revenge?
1: Oh, no, he's he's just gone. He's He's gone,
0: all right. Fate wor- worse than death.
1: Penelope Cruz died so he wouldn't have to. Or something, yeah. Because isn't that what the guy asked him on the phone at the end, like, would you die for her? Mm-hmm. And he says, yes. And that's why they don't even give him that. (laughs) They kill her off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, no, we're not even going to let you do a noble sacrifice. Sorry.
0: Actually, I thought it was like it was already too late. It was like, well, that was... Sorry, dude. I wish you called earlier.
1: So, yeah, Michael Fassbender's not in this film. He's off. He either killed himself or he's just... In self-imposed exile or something. I just want to see what happens with Malkina because what was missing from this movie, I think, as we talked about earlier, was the idea that, well, maybe Fassbender could get out of it. Mm -hmm. Could make the right decision. Could do something at the end to ultimately triumph. Yeah. We've seen now that uh, the Cameron Diaz character, Malkina, she's used to being the predator. She's used to triumphing. She's used to getting her way. She has the smarts to potentially get out of it. Mm -hmm. I want to see the sequel where she makes a mistake and ultimately comes to realize, oh, no, I'm no longer the predator. Mm -hmm. Now I'm the rabbit on the run, and I can't stop what happened. And
0: whether or not she fights back or she has to succumb to fate.
1: Right. I mean, ultimately, she's going to lose. Okay. But she seems like a character that, yeah, she would, much more so than the fastbender character who we didn't really know very well, uh, she would try to fight back and be like, Well no, I'm in control. This can't happen. Yeah. So I, I, I think that would that would be much more engaging. That would be more like the no country for old men model. Gotcha. I think. Let people think that you can get away with it and then no you no. can't. Psych all right, well, I think that'll wrap it up for part two of our discussion of The Counselor here on Cinema Fix. Don't forget to tune in next week when we will be discussing Ender's Game. We would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher, so if you like this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place, The Nerdy Projectors, and our two new TV-themed podcasts, uh, The Briefing Room, which is all about Homeland, and The Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. cast, which is all about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Monica, where can people find you online?
0: People can find me online on Twitter and Tumblr at movies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I-movies. They can also find my work reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association web- website at bofca.com.
1: You can find some of my writing at moviemezzanine.com and Pathios.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. Be sure to follow me, and we can continue talking about The Counselor. And you can let me know what you thought. And you can tell me, is it all meaningless? Is there a point? Should we continue on? Or is it all futile, signifying nothing?
0: Your conversation means nothing.
1: (laughs) Yes! (laughs) It's the internet and Twitter.
0: <laughs> but the universe is expanding.
1: <laughs> All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson.
0: I'm Monica Castillo.
1: And have fun this week in on Cinema, unless you're doing it through a Mexican cartel.